Welcome to journeywithjesus.net, a weekly webzine for the global church. My name is Daniel B. Clendenin. My essay this week is called Kids and God's Kingdom. It's based upon the lectionary readings for Sunday, September the 20th, 2015. Twenty years ago this fall, my family moved from Moscow State University in Russia, where I had spent four years as a visiting professor in the Department of Scientific Atheism, to Stanford University in California, where I joined a campus ministry to work with graduate students. Despite their many differences, Moscow University and Stanford were similar in two respects. Both were elite institutions. And secondly, at both, I felt out of my league, partly because of my own insecurities due to what's called imposter syndrome, and partly because I really was out of my league. I turned 40 weeks after moving to California back in 1995, which, if you do the arithmetic, means I'm turning 60 next month. The gospel for this week has helped me to parse these last 20 years. In the fall of 1997, two years after I arrived at Stanford, we started a faculty fellowship for Stanford professors. About a dozen faculty members began a breakfast meeting every Friday morning from 7 to 8 a.m. in the faculty club. A year later, a Tuesday morning group started in the Bing dining room at the hospital for physicians. And then a few years after that, a small Thursday group emerged for physicists at Stanford's Linear Accelerator. We had no, other idea, we had no idea whether the idea would work, much less flourish. But across the next six years, a hundred or so professors, research fellows, lecturers, physicists, and visiting faculty joined us at one time or another. What was the attraction? When we started, most people didn't know each other, so each week a different person shared their story. The very first Friday morning, Doug disarmed everyone with a candid account of his disintegrating marriage. The following week, Tony related his frustrations with raising teenagers. And then another professor recounted his financial failures. It became clear that these remarkably gifted people, who had reached the pinnacle of professional success, were more interested in sharing personal stories than intellectual ideas. The group became a sort of safe space, and as a result, so many good and important questions bubbled to the surface. How do you balance personal and professional responsibilities? How do spouses negotiate dual careers with heavy demands? What advice might an older professor give to a younger scholar facing the tenure process? Does God care about my research? Interesting, the answer to that question was yes, but probably not as much as you do. And I still remember the morning when Chuck noted with his trademark sardonic wit that behind every great man, there often lies a trail of human wreckage. Without intending to, 
we discovered the message of Jesus in this week's gospel, that the holy grail of human greatness that we honor, envy, and pursue, things like rank, wealth, recognition, power, title, privilege, and prestige, can exact a high personal price. Professional success has a limited capacity to nourish personal fulfillment. It doesn't protect us from human vulnerabilities, and sometimes it prevents us from experiencing the fullness of God's kingdom. To make his point, by his words and actions, Jesus radically reversed our normal, normal ideas about greatness. He said that little children epitomize the ethos of his kingdom. Three different times in Mark's gospel, Jesus warned his disciples about the tragic end that awaited him in Jerusalem. And all three times they responded with objections, disbelief, fear, and ignorance. After his first passion prediction, Peter rebuked Jesus, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But, Peter, but Jesus rebuked Peter for trying to prevent his sufferings. You do not have in mind the things of God, but the things of man. After another prediction, James and John asked Jesus for positions of glory. The ten other disciples were indignant clearly worried that James and John might gain some advantage over them. And then thirdly, in this week's Gospel, after yet another passion prediction, the disciples argued among themselves about who was the greatest. There's a bitter irony in their question, because in the previous paragraph, the disciples were unable to heal a little boy. Jesus responded to his disciples in two ways. First, he gave them a teaching. We read, Calling the twelve to himself, Jesus said, If anyone wants to be first, he must be the very last, and the servant of all. Second, Jesus dramatized his teaching with a piece of street theater. He placed a little child before the disciples then embraced the child and said, Whoever welcomes one of these children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me does not welcome me but the one who sent me. Matthew's parallel account of the same passage makes an interesting editorial change. In Matthew, Jesus says, Unless you change and become like little children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. One page later in Mark's Gospel, the disciples rebuked people who brought little children to Jesus so that he would bless them. We read, When Jesus saw this, he was indignant. He said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth. Anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. To welcome a child is to extend the simplest of acts to an individual whom society dismisses as perhaps cute, but ultimately insignificant. 
That is, someone who lacks any accomplishments, greatness, status, or pretensions. Jesus invites us to welcome every person in the same manner, without regard for their worldly importance. To welcome another person in that way, says Jesus, is to welcome him, and in turn to welcome God the Father who sent him. Similarly, to become or to imitate children is to see our own selves in the same way. Instead of searching for significance in titles, honors, or professional successes, we simply enjoy the knowledge that we are ordinary people loved by an extraordinary God. After eight and a half years of campus ministry at Stanford, I needed my own safe place where I could be welcomed like a little child without regard for professional success or personal status. And I found that place, surprise, surprise, right where Jesus said I would, when I volunteered for our church nursery. Every Sunday for two years, my wife and I served in the Sunday school class for babies aged three to 12 months old. In the nursery, my importance or my insignificance, my successes and failures didn't matter to little babies. It was something of a revelation to me how good that felt. My PhD didn't matter to overweening parents, a few of whom grew visibly apprehensive when they saw a man in the nursery. My mentors, Evelyn in her 70s and Miriam in her 80s, taught me lots about welcoming and imitating children. With little fanfare, we comforted crying babies, assured anxious parents, and changed dirty diapers. Like my faculty friends at Stanford, they taught me about the character of God's kingdom, about what matters most and why. For books this week, I review a new memoir by a British neurosurgeon. His name is called Henry Marsh, and the title of his book, Do No Harm, Stories of Life, Death, and Brain Surgery. New York, St. Martin's Press, 2014, this book is 277 pages. As I approached the end of my career, writes the British neurosurgeon Henry Marsh, I feel an increasing obligation to bear witness to past mistakes that I have made. When Marsh communicated that sentiment to a meeting with American colleagues, he said that it was met with stunned silence. A surgeon who publicly admits his mistakes? Marsh's memoir isn't really a confession of mistakes, as much as it is an honest account by an insider of what neurosurgery is really like. On the one hand, there's the exhilaration of the craft. He writes, The idea that my instrument is moving through thought itself through emotion and reason, 
that memories, dreams, and reflections should consist of jelly is simply too strange to understand. The satisfaction of helping people and of solving problems. But there's also the difficulty of balancing honesty and compassion when speaking to patients and their families. He speaks of the Olympian detachment required to perform well, frustrations with medicine that's controlled by government bureaucrats, then a whole range of emotions and experiences. For example, the tragic consequences of his hubris, the gross incompetence of a junior surgeon, intense anxiety, self-importance in a superiority complex, bitter regrets, false optimisms, and mistakes that he admits, quote, ruined lives, end quote. Marsh also describes his experiences on the other side of the table. As a patient himself, he had a detached retina and a broken leg. And then when his three-month-old son had brain surgery, Looking back on his days as a hardened, all-important, invulnerable young doctor, Marsh writes, I'm less frightened by failure. I've come to accept it and feel less threatened by it, and hopefully have learned from the mistakes I made in the past. I can dare to be a little less detached. Besides, with advancing age, I can no longer deny that I am made of the same flesh and blood as my patients, and that I am equally vulnerable. I read this book because of its positive review in the New Yorker magazine, and I'm very glad that I did. It's sure to draw consequences with a similar book by Atul Gawande called Complications, A Surgeon's Notes on an Imperfect Science. Henry Marsh, a British neurosurgeon, in his memoir, Do No Harm. And for movies this week, I review a documentary that came out this past summer. It's called The Stanford Prison Experiment. What are the psychological effects of becoming a prisoner or a guard? That was what the Stanford psychologist Philip Zimbardo wanted to know when he devised his now infamous experiment back in 1971. Twenty-four Stanford student volunteers played the roles of guards or inmates in a simulated prison. But when the guards became abusive and sadistic, and the prisoners became compliant, things got out of hand, and so the experiment was abruptly stopped after only one week. Zimbardo himself was implicated for his role as the so-called superintendent of the prison, and for letting unethical practices happen. As one article put it, the results of the experiment have been argued to demonstrate the impressionability and obedience of people when provided with a legitimizing ideology and social and institutional support.
This fictionalized film version of the real-life experiment premiered at the 2015 Sundance Festival. If it's not creepy enough for you, parts of the original experiment really were filmed and are available on YouTube. Or, finally, you can read Philip Zimbardo's new book called The Lucifer Effect, which includes comparisons between his experiment and the tragedies that happened at Abu Ghraib in Iraq. Once again, a documentary film, The Stanford Prison Experiment. And as we enter yet another political season, for poetry this week, we've post posted a poem by William Butler Yeats, 1865 to 1939. The title of the poem is called Politics, and it's preceded by a quote by Thomas Mann, who writes, In our time, the destiny of man presents its meaning in distinctly political terms. William Butler Yeats, a poem called Politics. How can I, that girl standing there, my attention fix on Roman or on Russian or on Spanish politics? Yet here's a traveled man that knows what he talks about, and there's a politician that has both read and thought, and maybe what they say is true of war and war's alarms, but oh, that I were young again and held her in my arms. William Butler Yeats, Politics. Thank you for joining us at journeywithjesus.net for Sunday, September 20th, 2015. I'm Daniel B. Clendenin.